Just a quick note before we jump into the episode. This was the first Zoom recorded episode I did, so the audio quality is a bit messed up. Should be sorted out within the next few episodes, so hopefully your eardrums bear with us here. That being said, on to the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to my third episode of the podcast, or potentially fourth, depending on how I cut them up. Um, today, I'm here with Adrian, Adrian Grancelli, who I know as this kind of like cool dude who comes into the makerspace, and I think he comes in mostly for woodworking, or has in the past, and I kind of know him through a funny story, because my dad mentioned to me that he was into rock climbing, and I was interested in it, so I just wanted to talk to him, and then like a week later... I come home one day, and him and another guy are on the roof of my building, rappelling down, helping to put up a giant sign. So, or maybe my memory's wrong. Did you guys ever actually end up rappelling no. down? No, we didn't. We didn't oh my gosh, totally it. got a, a false memory. For some reason, I thought that happened. Yeah, no, we just used the ladder. It was, it was a lot easier. Not as cool, but... <laughs> oh man, I swear I had a real mental image there of you guys just rappelling down. I think I got just too hopeful. I was expecting... There was talk of stuff, and then I came home, and you guys were there, and the sign was up, but <laughs> apparently no repelling. It's a mystery how it all happened. <laughs> yeah, so can you give me, like, your professional blurb, like your LinkedIn kind of profile, if you want? What would you say to somebody who's, like, asking you for a job interview or something? What's, like, the spiel? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I would say that Short, I am a, there's a lot because <laughs> I have a background in like a little bit of coding and web development, but also like in teaching everything from like saline to chess to, to physics um, to like laser cutting. Wow. Um, so right now I'm just an online learning designer, <laughs> but there's a lot of different, um, you know, worlds and backgrounds to draw on for that. Wow. Definitely sound like someone who wears all of the hats. Um, I have to ask, though, so like you say on, I, can you say that again? It was like online learning designer. Online designer. learning designer. Yeah. Almost got it. So what exactly is that? That sounds like the kind of buzzword that people throw around and sounds cool, but I have no idea what you actually do. Yeah, of course. Um, well, right now it is the the buzzword in education uh, <laughs> yeah, mean, covid like, is was that before covid or if you come back after the pandemic or yeah that's a great question um so i'm right now halfway through uh, a master's in educational technology so i decided to start this um like a year and a half ago two years ago and now thanks to covid i like <laughs> my career is excited <laughs> i'm not even done my program yet and i have like Wow. You're one of the few people that COVID's just like working for you, at least in that way. Yeah, totally. Well, that's awesome. So you Um, just do online learning kind of stuff? Yeah. So right now I have two part-time jobs. Um, The reason why they're both part-time is because one is um, I'm like one of the first people kind of in this position. Um, So I'm only part-time because they're testing out to see if this position will work. Um, and the other one is a nonprofit, so um, they don't have the funding to take me on full time, um, which is really exciting because they're both online learning designer. Um, but for one, I am the one who is actually designing um, content online to learn. Um, so it's like imagine a textbook except online. <laughs> um, I've, I've done um, homeschooling through Nides, which is completely online, yeah. and done, a, like, done stuff through the whole COVID. So I, I can't imagine it all too well. <laughs> I can't say that I'm a huge fan, so I'm glad to hear that somebody is actually going through and trying to make a new one. Yeah. Um, I mean, who, who is yeah. the people that are doing both of these? Like uh, what's so the organizations? Work, yeah, I work with Watch Chase Studio. Um, oh, right on. Yeah, and that's a screen printing company. And what we're developing is screen printing curriculum so that anyone can learn to screen print from their home. And more than just learning how to, they can also build all the like tools and... Um, wow, and that's awesome. Things. Yeah, so the goal is to have like a, a really affordable course online. Cool. Yeah. And then and the other, other yeah, group? The other one is with UBC, the Faculty of Land and Food Systems. Huh. So with them, I'm not so much hands-on designing the courses. I am, um, quote-unquote, the, like, educational technology expert. <laughs> and I am, like, 
advising people on how to best create their, their courses. Cool. So it's like a blend between like tech support and like, <laughs> like theoretical knowledge of what's, what's best, what's best practice. That honestly sounds way cooler than just having one or the other. Like I definitely appreciate the double part-time work. Like I don't know how the hours end up for you then. I hope it's not too crazy, but that sounds like it could be a really sweet way to get a bit of both. Um, yeah. I actually have a funny story about the YJ Center because they're just down the street from where our building is. And one time, the guy who runs it, I, I forget his name, but he's an awesome dude and who um, has poured so much time into that screen printing center. And like, if you ever walk in, which I'm, I hope you have, there's just filled with all this crazy cool art and stuff. But yeah. so one time, my dad had me come help him um, disassemble this old screen printing press, which they no longer needed. And I believe the story goes that my dad wheeled the whole thing just down the street <laughs> just to get it into our building. Actually, I think we had to disassemble it a bunch of the doors. There might not have been a ton of wheeling, but we now have this giant like screen printing frame, which hopefully one day will be a CNC sitting in our storage locker in the woodworking shop. And it's being used yeah. as a table. So I've seen it. I'm, I'm excited for the CNC to come. Yeah, one day, if we get that far. <laughs> That's always the question. So I'm really curious about your background because you also have like a bachelor's in engineering. And you've done, but then you've also done like other, all this different stuff from like teaching sale lessons, as you were saying. And I, I'm really curious to me um, where you kind of got your direction from. Because I see a theme here of education. Um, that seems to be the only kind of theme running through. Um, I'm, I'm really curious though, because you're the kind of guy who has, like I've for a while had an interest in engineering. And I've kind of lost that a bit now, and I'm transitioning more towards business. It just fits better with what I'm into. But I'm, it's fascinating to me to see people who have gone down a route that I feel like I could have gone down, especially with the interest in rock climbing and being a cool outdoorsy dude like yourself. <laughs> it's fascinating for me to see. So could you tell me a bit about like where you got your roots and stuff and where the direction comes from? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean... It is one of those convoluted stories. <laughs> there was definitely no straight path to That's what we like to hear. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like like you, when I was in high school, I like didn't really know what to do. Um, and university was like, that's what you need to go do. And I was really good at math. I was really good at physics. And more than that, I was good at it. I was really, I, I just really like it. I just love to problem solve. And I really just love to learn. Um, so that is what got me straight into mechanical engineering. Um, and I totally love it. It's like, it's really cool stuff. Um, but I didn't really, I guess, find a, a passion or drive for like employment in it. Um, maybe I was just in an also different phase of my life where I didn't really want that. <laughs> so that might play another role into it. Um, <laughs> it might. So that was just like, uh, I kind of got discouraged by the actual professional world of engineering um makes sense yeah but like also in high school i was um i was doing sailing in the summers and like absolutely loved it and i just started like being part of summer programs which i liked and then i came back as a volunteer for these summer programs <laughs> and then i started to teach these summer programs so i just kind of like worked my way up through the sailing world and that's kind of my first real roots of education um, wow and I really liked that. And I did that in the summers while going to university as well. Um, and then I got a bunch of also side jobs on the side, like teaching chess, tutoring, and all these things surrounding teaching. Um, and then the, the, so then I graduated, I went traveling and, um, something that brought me back to Vancouver was this just crazy coincidence. My, um, old sailing coworker, she was one year behind me in mechanical engineering. So, um, she knew that I, I could teach. <laughs> she knew yeah. that I did engineering and I finished it and I did like, I like pretty well in a, in a book sense. Um, and her dad was working at, um, BCIT running a, a, a faculty, a department. So I guess her dad just asked her like, do you know anyone who can teach physics? <laughs> and, <laughs> um, then I got a job at BCIT teaching physics. So wow. Then, uh, so you were an actual physics prof. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. You're um, one smart cookie. 
it, I mean, it was just like grade 11 and 12 physics, except at the like, college level. Yeah. But, um, same content. So I wouldn't say I'm a, a smart cookie. Well, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I think the bachelor's of engineering proves that wrong, but even still, I know what you're saying. Um, so yeah, like out of nowhere, um, I mean, I just like magically got thrown into like the mesh of two worlds of like education and like engineering and this technical side of things. Um, so there that just kind of like solidified my passion for education and I got a completely different perspective of it. Cause like if you teach sailing, it's like a fun thing, right? Kids want to be there. Yeah. You're teaching that like post-secondary and it's, it's like <laughs> a struggle sometimes. It's like, um, it's a requirement to do math or to do physics. So yeah. Especially with math and physics. Was, Those are like the worst for that. Yeah. Um, so I continued that for a while, um, but it was vocational, um, which means that I wasn't on like full or part-time with them. It's just whenever the course was. So that's like one month to, to three months out of the year. Um, huh. So then um, I guess fast forward a year or, or so, I was looking for work. So I applied to a makerspace in Vancouver, Maker Labs. Um, right on. Which was so cool. That's kind of like my window into the, the maker world and makerspaces. Um, Do you want to just I, talk a little bit about what Maker Labs is? Because I've been to Maker Labs and I'm lucky yeah. enough to grow up in the maker scene in Vancouver. But I think a lot of people, they're like, maker what now? And have no idea what that means. Totally. Um, so a makerspace is, um, how would I describe it to people in the best sense? Is like It's like a library for tools. <laughs> so um, somebody um, comes in and they can use all the tools that we have um, just because, or, and also have space to make it. Like, especially in Vancouver, there's not a lot of space. So um, some of these tools are super expensive as well. You have access to laser cutting tools, to CNC tools, or to like a whole wood shop, a metal shop, just stuff that like, it's pointless for just one person to own this. Like how often do you really use this stuff? Whereas um, a community of people, um, owning it or the makerspace owning it means that each tool is going to get used a lot more. Um, so this is, I guess, the environment it's in, but then the people that it attracts is just incredible. I was just going to say the community part to me is the best part of a makerspace. Yeah. I'm recording this in an actual makerspace, as Adrian knows, and we have the aforementioned laser cutter CNC. Um, we've taken over Swords Locker buildings. So we have it all separated in different rooms, but Maker Labs is more of like an open floor plan kind of divisioned off. But is Maker Labs still around? I was just going to say, if anyone has the chance who's listening, go check it out. What a cool space. Yeah, it's still around. Um, I'm not sure what the protocol is at the moment. Oh, yeah. Free, every, uh, free tours every day at uh, 6.30. I'm sure the times have changed, but you can check out the website to see what's going on. Um, but yeah, this space attracts a lot of creative types and everything from like a hobbyist to like people who have small businesses or even just use this as their like full-time, like this is their just business. This is their project. So it's, it's super cool. The just variety of it. And because there's so many different tools in one space, there's just so much like, I don't even know how to explain it, like divergent thinking and like ideas drawn on from other mediums that you'd never put together. Like you work beside like, you're, you do woodwork beside like someone like sewing or painting. And now all of a sudden those ideas like cross contaminate each other and you have something that's just not something that you'd normally get. So there's almost a magic that's kind of hard to describe for someone who's never been in it about like maker spaces and really the whole maker movement. If you've ever been to like a maker fair or even like in the coding scene, there's the whole like 24 hour codathons and stuff where you just have so many people in the room who are all being creative and you really just get this like buzzing energy which everyone kind of feeds off and you just get some really magical ideas and it's a total breeding ground for new projects and business ventures and all that kind of good stuff yeah yeah so can you tell me about your time at maker labs i'm i'm super curious from a personal perspective just because um especially if you could talk about how you found the business side of it because I've grown up with my dad starting makerspaces and going to maker fairs. And the f- it's kind of been an interesting movement because over the past 10 or so years, 
I can't say I'm an expert, but from my perspective, it seems like the movement has peaked and has really started to die down. And every now and then, like COVID or something will come along and give it a bit of a boost. COVID and more of the like digital learning side of things, but stuff will pick back up on the hype train. And there kind of is like the new cycle of every now and then someone will remember that 3D printers are a thing and they'll get all hyped up. And then we'll remember that they're still a developing technology and pretty hard to use. And it kind of goes in and out. But the movement has petered off a bit. And I think a large part of that is just it's really hard to monetize that community, despite it being immensely valuable to the people who participate in it. Totally. Um, I mean, you're asking sign of questions there but, um, <laughs> yeah i probably I think, should boil it down a little bit more and be like tell me about this instead of here's no, a monologue good um well i guess the first thing about like has the maker movement peaked that's like a really good question like i look at 10 years ago and maker spaces were were in a way like like individual things whereas now almost like every school has or is trying to get their own little makerspace public libraries right now have or they're trying to get their own makerspace so i think that maybe it's not as localized as it once was um and that might give the impression that it's not like increasing or hyping as much just because now there's access in so many different places um so that's i guess a comment about if the maker i think that's a really good point because i'm thinking of like a certain community of the maker uh, movements that I just grew up with and have nostalgia for of like a bunch of <laughs> sweaty people in a workshop all <laughs> merrily working together and getting drunk and making robots or 3D printers or whatever. But I think that might have died away a little bit more in favor of the... There's definitely an uproar in the terms of like um, 3D printers at libraries or even especially in schools too. It's becoming a standard thing for the school to have a laser cutter and a 3D printer in the shop wing. And I think that's really awesome, but kind of a different side of the same coin yeah and maybe this normalization like kind of takes away the hype i don't, I don't know um but the business at maker labs <laughs> so um i guess maker spaces are definitely a passion project <laughs> like, they're not a like make money quick thing by any means um so the I wasn't at Maker Labs for their whole time, but I got some insight into how it started and just how long it took that community to come around it. Um, and I think that's some of the like that's the growing phase really that the the Make It Zone is is in right now. It's it's building that community surrounding it. Um, for those who I, don't know, the Make It Zone is the name of the makerspace I'm currently recording in, and my dad runs. Yes. <laughs> um, so like the. I guess I can just give one quick example in that when Maker Labs moved into their new building that they have, um, their landlord cut them a deal where they can only, like, they're going to grow into it because it was such a big space. They didn't nearly have the community to support that space. So they got cut a big deal and um, they moved in and had paid for like half the space, used half the space, and then um, it only took like a, a year later for them to grow from like 50 members to like 150 members where they, wow. that. but I think that's just where that, like the critical mass came, like getting to that first 50 is really hard. Yeah. And then once you get to a certain point, everybody's like, this is awesome. I'm going to bring my friends. Yeah, yeah. And then there you go. You've got for your note, you have too many people and you don't know what to do with them all. Yeah. <laughs> There's a waiting list for, for, for studio spaces. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, that critical mass is key. And like Maker Labs doesn't advertise anywhere. Like it's just all word of mouth. Um, and yeah, like it's, it is hard to, to make ends meet in the makerspace world. Um, because you're also, <laughs> it's just hard for funny reasons. You're dealing with um, artists who are sometimes hard to, Hard, hard, hard to get business out of. <laughs> Starving artists like, rings all too true most of the time. Yep. And you have the Especially in Vancouver. Yeah. And then you have the entrepreneurs who are trying to make ends meet themselves and trying to do everything <laughs> as cheaply as possible. And um, then you have the people who just kind of like maybe want to try it out. <laughs> um, 
So it's just hard to get that like committed long-term community. Um, but when it's there, like people, like some people I remember in the maker space, they had like a studio space. They were, they, they were to the point where they were self-sufficient. They didn't need to be there anymore, but they chose to deal with the, the, the downsides of like sharing tools, um, sharing space, working around other people's hours just so that they could stay in the space. Cause they really thought that the pros outweighed, outweighed the cons. I think that's the coolest part to me about Maker Labs because they have such a big space. And we're starting to get this a little bit now and make it zone with some people um, like setting up their own little shop here, but with, or just like renting a storage locker almost and then running their business out of it. But in Make It Labs, because it was all open, you could walk around and there was like the people who ran the sailboat making company, from what I remember, and the, or some sort of boats. And then like upstairs, you could go and they had a whole space just where people would rent out individual space for whatever project or business or club they're running. So you just get this like whole microcosm of all these different worlds mashed in the same space. And it is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably, yeah, that's probably like the most inspiring place I've, I've ever worked. <laughs> so what did you do there? Like, obviously you taught something, but what were your, your focus and your yeah, time that's spent there? Question. So right when I came on, I was just, um, I was a uh, community manager. So just the I, I, idea was, was that I take care of the logistics, make sure that all the members are happy, make sure that the dues are paid. Um, and then once those like requirements are done, then we work on other stuff like making the space better, uh, making sure we have stock, trying to throw events, um, trying to connect people more. Um, and yeah, it's a surprisingly hard thing to do. Um, I was going to say, you must have some stories there. Yeah, yeah. There was a small team of us. There was three at the most. Um, and like, again, like the there's so much to do and there's so few of us, but that's just because it, it's hard to, to make men's meet someone in the, in the maker maker space. Um, but at the same time, we also rely on our members who are just great people to be like honest and to help out. And like a lot of the tools are, are maintained and taken care of by members. Um, that's just the power of the community. Um, so that's the position I started in. And then I would, I would, start teaching more and more classes at maker labs. Um, and then eventually we were able to get enough community managers on that. I was able to become the, and create, we, we created the position of the education manager where I, uh, was just in charge of the classes in particular and able well, to teach awesome. them all and just make sure that we have people teaching all the classes. Um, which yeah, another organizational piece, but I was still a lot closer to, the education side which i really liked yeah so i'm i'm kind of curious like hearing you say how you're like sort of sounds like you kind of started off almost as a manager having to like chase people around a little bit did you find you got a bit of a bad rap for that in the community being the guy who's like hey you got to pay your dues and like no you shouldn't like buzzsaw into that metal you're gonna break the braid what are you doing you're gonna cut off your fingers you idiot (laughs) yeah that's a really good question and like a really hard balance to strike. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes the fun police, but then they blame them when things goes wrong. So kind of have yeah. to have it. Um, I'd say that there's definitely a couple people um, in the community that I guess my relationship with them or their relationship with the Make a Lab staff was um, there was some tension there. But for the most part, I think there was general just like like praise, I guess, for the staff and, and what they do. Um, yeah, I definitely felt welcomed more than more than not. Well, that's awesome to hear. I'm really curious if you can tell me a bit more about any of those like particular people. Don't use any names. We don't want to be mean to anybody. But was there any like specific things that jump out to you of instances like that? Or it's a good question. Um, the absolute hardest thing to deal with on Anchor Labs was um, what we called short-term storage. Um, so what that is is say i'm working on this project i'm going to work on this project all week so like i'm just gonna like leave it in this corner for short term (laughs) Um, and that's the hardest thing to do because if everyone and their dog leaves something in that corner then you just have a whole you said a junkyard yeah yeah um so 
the hardest part was keeping track of everyone's short-term storage, which wasn't always short-term, right? Um, and people who felt that it was their like right to to store things kind of some places for short-term. Um, that was the hardest struggle, I would say. And then like you go and you like, we, we tried to different systems, like we ticket people, we give people warnings and like, that's where like the most contention came from and like, and i understand also from their perspective like i just want to leave this here for like the night but like oftentimes they they don't leave it for just the night. <laughs> <laughs> i can see that happening all too easily like you're <laughs> you think oh it will only be an hour or two before i get my giant dragon head done and then before you know <laughs> call of duty's calling your name or whatever it is and yeah. Yeah. Did, what did you found work the best? Did you end up just ticketing people or was politely, politely knocking on their door the way to go? Um, well, the problem with knocking on their door is you, you don't always know who it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I think ticketing was what, that's what we ended on when I was there. Because um, it's the easiest thing. You don't have to move it because moving stuff takes forever as well. Um, so we were just we were just ticket it and not always they got paid. Not always we found out who it was, but it was a start. <laughs> Makes sense. At least yeah. it's like a tap on the shoulder with a bit of a like, hey, you screwed up. Yeah. Yeah, well that's really cool. How how did the was community doing when you left? I'm curious where it kind of ended off. And did you move on for any particular reason beyond just moved on to better things or Yeah, so I moved on to go traveling. Um that was last may um and it was things were doing great so this is like pre-covid um i hired a replacement who i think is doing like fantastic job she was um already um in makerspace for a long long time longer than i actually and she was had a studio and would run her own uh stained glass oh that's awesome so like perfect burden I've heard a little bit about COVID um, and Maker Labs. Um, the worst thing I'd say is that their landlord didn't apply for or didn't allow them either to apply for the grant for a lease subsidy or rental Ouch. subsidy. Um, so that's probably the worst thing. Yeah. Um, and that members definitely have a lot more restrictions now. Yeah, I can I can't imagine how bad that'd be, especially for someone like Makerspace where such an open community driven mm-hmm. plan that I can see that being a total yeah. issue. But it's good to hear that they're still alive and kicking. That makes me happy. Yeah. Um so tell me about your traveling. That's always so cool to hear. Were you going for the whole like put on a backpack and go hit the world kind of thing? Yeah. Or the tell plan me about was, it. the plan was two years. <laughs> oh um, yeah. We made it 10 months before COVID made us come home. Oh, ouch. This is where I'd give you a pat on the shoulder if I could, but. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. There's lots of ups and lots of downs for sure. Um, never like traveled through so long before. So it just got to a point where like the new, the different, the, 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 the crazy and the culture shock just is like a normal day-to-day thing. <laughs> so that was, that was funny. I really want to get into the nitty gritty of this because I'm like probably six months out, maybe a little bit longer from hitting the road myself and doing the whole like grand journey, go see the world, round the world trip. So I'm really curious like what your experience was planning for it and all that. But what countries did you guys make it to? Yeah, so we first we went to um, France. We landed in Paris. There was a really cheap ticket from Vancouver to Paris. Um, awesome. And then we had to leave the Schengen zone, which is um, uh, the majority of Europe. You can only stay for three months if you don't have a passport. Um, So we went to Bulgaria and Romania in Eastern Europe, which they're not yet part of the Schengen zone. So we traveled there. Then we went to Spain, where we went to a uh, a Burning Man festival. Oh, wow. Um, But in Spain? Yeah. So it's a regional burn. It was called Nowhere. Wow, tell me about that what that was like. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. I um my good friend, good good friend from university. Um he's also not in the engineering world anymore. Um and he and his uh 
old coworkers, um, I guess still coworkers, um, have this camp and their camp is tea and like tea and stories again, essentially. So I got invited to participate in their camp, which was so cool. And um, we built up a little tea house um, in the desert in Spain. And Wow. I didn't even know Spain had deserts, but. Yeah, it's, it was hot. One day it was like almost 40 degrees. Oh my God. How do you guys cope with that kind of heat just stuck in the desert? Like. I think we just sat in the shade and kind of like napped. (laughs) Wow. Um, How were you guys like full Burning Man style out in the middle of nowhere? Or were you kind of closer to civilization or? um, Well, I mean, everything in Europe is closer. (laughs) So we were in the middle of nowhere as as far as like Europe conditions go. Um, It was about three hours from Barcelona. Okay. Um, and there was a small town, like, I think 30 minutes away, like really small. Like we drove up and down these streets looking for like, I think toilet paper and found like one or two people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, but it's really cool. Cause even like the, where the actual event was held, you would like, um, direction for like. Five. 10 minutes um you'd whoa i think we can lost you there i can hear you the wi-fi is being a little iffy okay do we want to just try turning off our video and see if that does it i wonder if it's just on your end if you're outside or maybe it's mine sure i'll turn it off is that that working better for you yeah, I mean, it was working the same for me, but I guess I was the one talking. So <laughs> weird. It kept you kept going slow on your end. So I will, hopefully I can just use your recording, and then it won't be a problem at all. But if it is, it's only a little bit of lag. You started going all robot on me there. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, where were we? Uh, you might be still doing it. Just try talking. Are you saying anything? I can still Can you hear me? I can, but you're glitching immensely. You sound like a robot. I wonder, is your connection going down or something? No, I'm still full bars. Weird. Maybe that's just Zoom playing up. Let me see. Mine should be still, yeah, mine's still good. Well, we can just keep going and then hopefully it doesn't turn out. I'm not sure how that will work with the recording. I might have to just cut out this bit and then I'll just do the best I can. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so you're just saying how the you could walk five to, men, five to ten minutes is about where you got cut off? Yeah. In the desert? Yeah, so you can just... Yeah, we're in the middle of the desert, middle of nowhere. Um, it's not nearly like flat desert, but um, there's some some hills and i'm not sure what you what you call those um mesas maybe um but yeah you just walk like five ten minutes in one direction you'd find like an old just broken down house so it's like people lived there a long time ago oh wow that's so cool yeah what was the like burning experience for it was it the classic burning man that everyone jokes about of like dropping acid in the desert and all the different crazy art camps and stuff and or was there an actual burn or like yeah, did they burn something in the middle? <laughs> there was no burning there just because it was uh um it, it was too hot, it was too dry, it was just you're not allowed to burn anything. It was just Makes sense. Fires, um or brush fires. There weren't many forests near us. Um but yeah, it was just it was a relatively small event, like thirty five hundred people. Okay. Um I think. And it was just like a, a a smaller scale of it all like the art was smaller but like the people were it was it was really cool yeah <laughs> yeah i know it sounds like an awesome experience um yeah it, it it's funny a, that um, 35 uh, people sound small <laughs> uh, yeah it, it is funny actually <laughs> there was um one thing that was really funny stood out was there was um 
an underground pizzeria. <laughs> an underground pizzeria. Yeah, like, like how underground are we talking? Like catacomb style or just like step into no, the earth? Well, I mean, they dug it, so it wasn't quite a catacomb. You can't build that in like a day. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like maybe like like the roof was maybe like a couple feet thick, like half a meter thick, and then underneath you could stand and everything. Wow. Yeah, it's just unique. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. So tell me about like, so after you guys, you went to Europe and then Bulgaria, did you get any further than that or is that when COVID? Oh, yeah. No, so then um, we ended up going to Germany and spending some time with my partner's family. Um, we did some hiking in the Dolomites, um, which was beautiful. The Dolomites are the region between um, Italy and uh like switzerland in that area there wow um, the thing that i found the coolest was there was a lot of fighting there in world war one so deep in these like you're in the middle of nowhere these are like the rockies like they're just super pointy crazy mountains and there'd be like a bunker that was left over from like a war 80 years ago wow that's so crazy they don't have any issues of like landmines or anything like that do they or unexploded I, grenades i don't think so I mean, they might, but like... Yeah, it's probably so rare by now. Yeah, and these bunkers, like, I mean, you're talking about, like, on, like, the the ridge of a mountain. It's not, like, a, <laughs> a minefield. Like, it was just historically also just a really bad place to be in, in the war. Yeah, wow. And um, there's something called the Via Ferrata, which is, like, a, uh, like a string of, like, essentially trails that they built. Uh, but they're not really trails. They're just... <laughs> they're they're essentially like carved out of like mountain tips of where people um soldiers would just like walk to bring provisions through wow um, so there was this one that was still that we we stumbled upon that was just like a staircase carved out of the mountain you like climb up it for like like 50 100 meters it was so cool and um, so after you guys made it out of did you go anywhere else after that or yeah, just kind of stay so in europe we went, I know. Then we went to Tunisia, Northern Africa, um, and then Morocco, uh, and then we ended up going to India. Wow! So you really did go all over the place. Yeah, I mean, we we were planning to spend a lot longer in India and then explore more of Southeast Asia, um, but we were in uh, Varanasi, which was when we decided to come home. <laughs> So what was that? Tell me what the feeling was like when you guys like the process of slowly starting to get the trickle of the news of the COVID, especially in Italy and stuff. And like, what was that like for you guys? I can't imagine how intense that must have been. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so at first we like would not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you our reality is like already just. I mean, for the last year, we're just like kind of like living on 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 what we're carrying on our back. So our 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 reality is kind of like what we see, and the cultural experience is always just so various. So our normal is just all over the place. And what we were seeing at that time was just um, at the very beginning was a couple tourists would just talk about Corona. Um, none of the Indians would, um, and it was just like seemed like so far away and like not really a problem i remember like reading about wuhan right when it started and it's like hmm this might be a problem <laughs> it was just so much of like you wouldn't believe it till you saw it right yeah i don't think um, any any of us were this ready i still remember like spring break we were all joking haha i'll see you in four weeks and then yeah. <laughs> we never came back so then we ended up um we still just traveled and like slowly things around us started to like reflect that there was change um, in the air. Um, some Indians were just like pointed at us being tourists and be like, Corona, Corona. <laughs> and like, um, and then we, we saw that then like, we're just always like online reading about what's going on. You still don't really like believe it. Right. Um, and then we um, were finally like, okay, our plan is that this is going to happen at some point. Like, 
we can't avoid this. So at first we were, we were planning to just go to the mountains um, near Rishikesh, um, which is supposed to be a beautiful place on the Ganges and just like bunker down for two months. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that sounds fun. Um, and then we'll keep on traveling. But um, that was our plan for, I think maybe three days. And oh, then wow. things like shifted a lot. So what, what changed in those three days and what was the like (laughs) 72 hours of checking the news and. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest things that changes where we were just talking with more and more travelers from. Other places in the world and India was have some really be affected by Corona. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, like it's, I mean, was over like severely um affected um but they were still like one of the one of the last um so we ended up just talking with other travelers and other friends and people back home and like where we were in india was like a lot more tame than what was happening in vancouver at the exact same time so um there was just a lot yeah things just happened rapidly some of the um ceremonies and they're called pujas um in um in hindi and hinduism were just getting canceled by the government um and there was just becoming more and more like negativity um towards tourists makes Um, sense yeah like hotels were shutting their doors um uh one night we were just walking on the way back home from getting food and um mind you there's like indians all around us not wearing a mask and whatnot and like we've been in the exact same environment as everyone else and then two police officers with like guns just like stop us (laughs) wow and they don't have masks on either and they're like where's where are your masks and then (laughs) um you need to go right back to your homestay and there's like just like a bit of a uh like that was one big red flag it wasn't even so much like the corona is the problem it's just that like uh yeah uh, i can see that being a problem especially somewhere like rural india or even like modern india just because of the perception and stuff even here with the whole license plate thing anyone who's traveling has has such a problem yeah so yeah there was just i guess like a little bit of um i don't i don't even know if racism is the right word but like that's what it's identified as, I guess. Um, just seeing someone who's an outsider and, and being targeted a little bit. Yeah, um, I think this quickly becomes when there's like a any sort of global pandemic or global fear going on, it very quickly becomes anyone who looks like an outsider. Totally. Um, it's very afraid of them. And that's completely understandable. Um, so then we ended up booking a flight home. Uh, we got a new bus and we spent all night taking a bus to new Delhi. <laughs> wow um and i was just thinking in my head like what if we can't get this plane <laughs> like new delhi is the last place you want to be on right? one of the last places like one of the biggest cities in the world yeah um, and mind you i forgot one thing when we were on the bus um we saw the announcement that the prime minister was shutting down india like three days from that Wow. We literally bought our plane tickets um, like hours before the prime minister declared that India was shut. Um, And after that announcement, ticket prices skyrocketed. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's crazy how much time it worked out there. Yeah. So we got under the, under the gun and like two days later we made it back to Vancouver and, and we quarantined and then moved to Courtney. Yeah, so that kind of leads into another question I had was what made you guys choose the Comox Valley? Like, did either of you grow up here at all or did you just figure it was a cool place, change from Vancouver to hunker down in through COVID or yeah, well, what I mean, brought you guys here? Um, it's more than just hunkering down through COVID. I think this is just more of a, a forever place for now. Um, it's, uh, I mean, my partner has lived here for a year before in the past, but I've never seen Courtney before. <laughs> But it kind of checked all the boxes, right? Like it has like a, a young community. 
it has the ocean, it has the mountains. Um, it just really checked all the boxes. So I was happy to commit without even seeing it. The Comox Valley is very unique in the sense that we do have like a taste of just about everything. Yeah. Like there's a there's a couple sports we only have in limited capacities like surfing you have to go to Tofino but even then just like the fact that you can have somebody like kayaking the same day like I'm up on the mountain snowboarding or something like that is just so unique and amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I love it here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so that's really cool you guys got to travel. It's such a bummer that kind of ended that way and like a <laughs> get the heck out of here kind of thing, but yeah. What was the sense among, like, the consensus among all the backpackers and stuff you guys saw? Were you staying in, like, a hostel or something? Or were you guys had yeah. a more permanent place to stay? Uh, no. So, in that moment, we were in a, a homestay, um, which is, uh, I mean, it's pretty much like a hotel, um, except it's, like, built kind of with someone's home. Um, huh. So, we didn't necessarily have any other travelers in uh, where we were living or where we were staying but we would go to like backpacker like uh cafe and hang out there and the consensus was that a lot of people were going home um we had a couple we had a friend that was italian so uh she like couldn't really go home wow (laughs) um because of how timing worked out and um and same with another friend who just didn't plan to plan to leave um, and I think both of them stayed in the Rishikesh area. Um, so like, that's where we we're planning to stay in the mountains. But I mean, after the lockdown kind of eased, they just both, um, went home anyways. Wow. I kind of feel like being somewhere like some sort of mountain region in like a small town or something could be a really cool way to spend quarantine. Like sounds way cooler than just being locked up at home, but I can see how somewhere like India, that just, if things went wrong, could be such a like scary situation to be in totally and like things did go wrong (laughs) Uh, yeah well what do you mean like just for those people in specific or no like not for them but just for the country as a whole there was a lot of uh, i guess just the the cultural views on a lot of things mixed with the difficulty to govern such a huge population led to some some poor outcomes what do you mean like like i mean one example was the prime minister just said that like india is closed for for a day there was like one or two days notice about that wow um so rather than actually like making people stay more separate now there's just there's incited panic wow and then another policy that was made was that um, India, then after that, for weeks, it was, you can only leave your house between like two hours in the morning, yeah. um, which again, like, great, you're reducing contact, but now every single person is leaving their house at those exact same time to oh, get no. their food for the day. Yeah, wow. Um, and it ended up, sh- they ended up just shutting down like, all of their buses and transport systems and like kind of ending work and there's a huge migrant population that goes to the big cities but lives in the rural areas who just essentially live in the big cities for like oh my gosh and now those people there, and they had they ended up a lot oh i might have lost you here Oh, my mic died. Oh no! Well, how does this sound? Uh, it still sounds fine. Okay. 
it might not be amazing, but we'll make it work. I'm not too worried about it. Okay. It's, the, it's the end of the podcast anyways, so I feel like at this point people will be bought in enough, but we'll see. If you're still listening, people, I apologize about the audio quality. I'll try and cut out as much of the pause as I can, but some of it would just get left in, which isn't ideal, cool. but it's just what it is. Everyone, you're getting the real take on Zoom podcasting. So far, the conclusion is it sucks. <laughs> COVID hey, not is so terrible. Not so bad for what we have. I don't know. I'm definitely appreciating the in-person podcasting from this. I love, like, as much as I love the Zoom, staring into my camera or the screen, even if it has your face on it, just is not the same. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sitting outside and I can stare at the tree. <laughs> well, you've got me there. I've just got, like, a glowing screen and a white wall, so um but yeah so a lot of transient workers had to just walk home on the streets with wow. thousands and thousands of others so i can't imagine the impact it would have on india like that's almost a place where i wonder if it would have been better to just ignore covid because of the amount of like it would kill so many people but the amount of panic and economic damage to a place where some people are already economically suffering so badly i just can't imagine the impact it would have had yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I don't think ignoring it's the best thing, but there was, <laughs> yeah, so anyways, I'm really fortunate to be back here in Canada. Yeah. That perspective of it all is, is actually pretty, pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so what did you guys find was, uh, like, any tips for planning towards the start of your trip? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the that was a really hard part in that I'm not so much of a planner and I can, uh, I guess I thrive more in my life. My, my partner wanted to plan, not not like a hyper planner, but like know, know some of the basics. Um, when you say you don't like to plan, like how free spirit are we talking? Are you the kind of guy that like buys a one-way ticket to India, shoves some stuff in a bag and like, woo, let's go. Or are you like, I'll go to this place, maybe this place kind of thing? Or that's, how that's often what, deep end are we talking? That's what, I mean, that's what we both did. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, we just got one-way tickets everywhere. Nice. Um, it was, I guess we just like collected some cool things that we wanted to, we wanted to find. We, we Together we um, had a, a Google Maps uh like a my maps where you can save your places um so we just kind of like pinned and there's these dots all over the map of who places that we 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 maybe want to go to um and that's kind of like what guided a lot of our trip is that there's all these cool things and like let's string it together in a logical and then when we're en route or between some of these places check out the lonely planet for like what else there's more in the areas Makes sense. It sounds like a really smart way to do it just with like the Google Maps because you can kind of see like a rough zigzag of where you want to try and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes you're like in some area and you look at your Google Maps and you're like, oh my God, I'm so close to this thing that I really wanted to, wanted to see. <laughs> well, there you go. How do you guys find like the budgeting aspect of stuff? Because that's the other thing that I'm like as a young person who wants to go hit the road and see the world is always like, ah, how do I pay for this all? Did you guys work abroad at all or were you just sightseeing the whole time? Um, we, we saved up a lot beforehand, so we weren't really making money when we were traveling, but something that we, I mean, we're, we're super cheap travelers. Um, yeah. You don't sound like the five-star hotel kind of people. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but what we did was we were doing some workaways. Um, what workaway is is uh, it's an online platform where you get connected with people and you work for a place to sleep. Sometimes. Yeah, like woofing, right? Yeah, exactly. Except woofing is focused on farming. And- yeah, specifically on organic farming. Yeah, workaway is um, more broad. Um, and we did some couchsurfing as well, um, just because that community is another really cool community. Um, yeah. So that's how we got to meet locals because um, that's something that I strive for when traveling is it's so easy to get caught up in the traveler world, which is also super fun. But a lot of what we wanted to do with traveling is get a 
real culture. I, I appreciate what you're saying there about like the travels culture versus local because especially somewhere like Europe where there's like an established like backpacker scene, it's almost a different experience from what I've heard. It's like whether or not you're hanging out with the backpackers, which is cool and different, but it's his own world versus like actually seeing the place you're in and getting to know the locals. So Totally. In Europe, like for me, Europe, I mean, for, for both of us, actually, Europe was in a way too similar to home for us to have absolutely loved it. Um, like there's beautiful history and it's all intertwined in the culture, but the big drive for me is that Europe has awesome culture compared to home, but it's hard to really experience that in a day or a week while traveling through somewhere. Um, So I guess for that reason, I really liked um, the other places we went a lot more just because it's like the differences are like in your face. (laughs) Yeah, it's a much more like visceral and in your face kind of experience I can imagine. And I think the other thing about Europe is that it's way more expensive compared to somewhere like India. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the other part that appeals to me is like, if I'm going to go be a broke traveler anywhere in the world, the cheaper, the better. So you yeah. get more culture shock for less money <laughs> if you don't go to Europe or anywhere in the North America or anything like that, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did you find traveling as a couple? Because that's always another interesting one. Like, it sounds like you guys are still together, so it can't have gone too <laughs> bad, but. Were you guys pretty serious before you started traveling or? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, we, we were dating for about a year and a half before we traveled and now we're at three years. Um, nice. And yeah, I mean, we're still together. <laughs> it definitely has its ups and downs because I mean like, well, we were like essentially with each other for every minute of every day for yeah no i can't imagine the intensity of that especially somewhere like india where like you can't just like leave the other person and go do something else like totally and and like india and like morocco wasn't necessarily like that safe if i left if i left her alone yeah that's the other thing that's kind of sad but it's a huge problem like yeah and I wouldn't, I guess, I, it's not really fair to say it wasn't safe, but it definitely made her feel at times uncomfortable. Yeah. Did you guys do, like, the whole, like, wear a wedding wing even if you're not married and, like, all that kind of stuff to in India to avoid the worst of the sexism and that aspect of the culture? Or Yeah, um, a little bit. I mean, she, uh, my partner just wears rings, so she just put it on that, that, that finger. <laughs> um, but we did tell people that we were married in India, especially um, there. Yeah. It's very much uh, if you, it's, it's so ingrained in the culture um, in that you couldn't even, if you, so they had different rules for travelers and foreigners, but if you were an Indian, you can't rent a room if you're not married. So wow. That's strict. Yeah, I've watched, there's a movie by, I think it's Deepa Mate we watched in our English class, actually, that was one of the most dark things I've ever seen, called Water. It's a very oh, beautiful movie. That. Yeah, it's just about the widow culture in India. Yeah. Highly recommend it to anyone who's listening. Um, I, I make it sound worse than it is, just the ending is very sad. But I yeah. think it's something like, I forget how many, some some crazy amount of million windows. I think it's like 46 million, or probably someone's fact-checked that, because it's definitely different than that are living in absolutely horrible um, conditions just because of the belief that in the Hindu religion that you're meant to supposedly die with your husband or act like you're dead. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So, and I think, Yeah, well, how did you find, like, managing just being together all the time? Like, did you have to, like, intentionally find some time to just get away from each other? Or did you find it the newness of everything else kind of made things work out? Um, a little bit of both. <laughs> um, I mean, for the most part, we're both, we're both super easygoing and just comfortable with each other. Um, 
and we're definitely distracted in our and in, in the traveling world. But there's definitely times where we had to take some time, um, just alone time, and that was that was good. I mean, all in all, it was just an incredible experience that I think brought us closer. Nice. Yeah, that is really cool way to bond is like going and see the world together and stuff. I'm sure that went a long way. As long as you don't hate each other by the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So you can make through the crazy moments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any advice for someone who's looking to go kind of do the same gist and go hit the world? That's that's hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, boil it down to your top three points right now on the spot. Like, I want the best, the best, Adrian. <laughs> all right. Um, let's go with say yes, because <laughs> um, you you never know what leads to anything. <laughs> um, so just more often than not, like just say yes to what comes your way. Um, there's a really good balance to strike between trying to be as cheap as possible and splurging on like the unforgettable experience once in a while. And yeah, so I know sometimes I definitely get in that mindset of trying to like be eventual traveling, just like make it last longer. Makes sense. Sometimes it's definitely worth it to 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 invest in some stuff. And I guess just just talk with people. <laughs> yeah, a simple conversation goes really far when you're traveling and when you're just like so like vulnerable, like you just build trust and rapport like instantly and it's something that like you only get traveling. It's so cool. Yeah. No, that is something I've heard. I mean, did you find that was an issue somewhere like India, though, with the language barrier? Or did you guys pick up a bit of the local language? Yeah, I know. We, we, <laughs> um, lucky for us, um, India predominantly does speak English. Makes sense. That is kind um, of the, the blessing and the curse of being an English-speaking person is that the world has kind of come around to our silly language. So, totally. Kind of makes us a little language, ah, a little <laughs> lazy about learning things, but yeah, totally. Um, so the language barrier there was 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 super low. Um, we didn't. <laughs> I, I, I know like a handful of words in in Hindi, but especially because we were like traveling around the different places in India. Each area has their own language. Um, so, yeah, we didn't make a far with learning <laughs> learning to speak the local language there. Yeah, no, that's understandable. Well, it seems about as good a place as any to start wrapping things up. Um, I do have like a kind of fun bonus question that I want to end things on. Yeah. Um, I've in the past I've done some like accidental bonus questions, but this one's intentional, but I thought it'd be kind of funny. So I didn't get to touch on the rock climbing as much as I was hoping to. I'll have to have you on another time or something to yeah. just talk shop about rock climbing. But I was curious what your thoughts were on kombucha and then <laughs> in all your travels, what's your favorite beverage that you've ever had? <laughs> um, Okay, well, kombucha, I like kombucha. I've made kombucha for three years now. <laughs> you know you're a rock climber then. Yeah, I've, you know, I've only started really, really rock climbing this summer. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I'm already like lead climbing 10 A's and everything. But wow. Me this summer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a competitive, competitive climb this summer. If you're, that's like a, quite the ramp up, but that's awesome. Yeah, I think that I, I I don't know if I am stupid or good at suppressing fear. <laughs> <laughs> good at holding on to things and not looking down. Yeah. Um and my favorite beverage in all my travels. That's a really tough one. Um I am gonna say some of the fruit lassies in India were so good. That's like a 
essentially like a yogurt milkshake, but like a special taste, particular oh. type of yogurt. I've heard of them, but I can't say I've ever had one. So I think that's the kind of thing you really just have to go to India or somewhere yeah, far away from here. Well, I'll have to try one. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Adrian. Yeah. Well, it was it really was... cool to talk to you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to plug? I don't know. You're not doing anything to like social media or anything crazy like that. But if anybody wants to hire you for your online learning prowess, is there anywhere they should check out or... Um, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, if you want to contact me to, to, I guess, see some travel photos, um, or work on a maker project or an education project or, or then, yeah, teach the next big thing. Um, I guess you can find me on Instagram at, uh, two, the number underscore curious. Cool. And anybody is always for any of my guests, they can always reach out to me and then I can get the guest permission and put you in touch via email if that's helpful to anyone. But sounds like Adrian's you're busy and don't need to do the whole like (laughs) promo thing. That's kind of refreshing to hear. I spend too much time with entrepreneurs who are like, yeah, I'll plug my 10 different things. You can find me on this, this, this and that. And if you want to give me money for this, please do. So massive thanks to Adrian for recording with me and all the auto production tips he's given me since. It's been a huge help trying to find some intro music, figure out the editing process, and ultimately decide to pretty much ignore both. (laughs) If anybody wants to find Adrian, I will link to his Twitter in the description, or you can simply contact me on my website, and with his permission, I will put you in touch. You can find my website if you just type in tristan.show. I'll also link that in the description. See what I did there. Until next time, peace.